What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Dr. Minkoff on the line, and we talk about all kinds of we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about his upbringing and history and education in modern medicine. Um, he did uh, disease control. He did emergency room, wound prevention, and then he transitioned from there into more of a natural holistic health uh, type of practice. He sees patients and he focuses more on the holistic, uh, you know, dietary interventions, um, you know, natural remedies. So I learned a ton about what was his motivation behind doing that. We talked deeply about how the modern medicine uh, infrastructure is set up and what some of the flaws are therein and kind of some of the benefits in transitioning to this more natural holistic approach to medicine. Uh, we dive into amino acids. We, we talked about his new book, uh, The Search for the Perfect Protein, what he's found in that research, how it can be applied. This guy is a beast. He's he's run, he's run He's done 43, uh, 42 uh, triathlons. He's training for his 43rd triathlon now. Um, he's 72 years old. He's a beast. So I was very excited to see what all he had to say about all of this information. I learned a ton. I have no doubt that you will as well. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast with Dr. Minkoff. And we are live. Dr. Minkoff, how are you, sir? I'm great. Actually having a good day. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. So I'm excited to chat with you because you have a medical practice and you have you, you have several people in there that you've actually uh, advocated the ketogenic diet for, which is oftentimes unheard of when it comes to anything in the medical space. Uh, so I definitely want to dive into that. But before we roll up our sleeves and jump into that topic, I'd love to kind of get some backstory on you. What got you into health and wellness in the first place and then uh, towards the trajectory that you're on currently? Okay. Um, I started in medicine, uh, when I did my, when I finished medical school, I didn't, couldn't figure out what I wanted, what kind of doctor I wanted to be. And back in those days, it was the late seventies. I, you could do what was called a rotating internship. So you could do three months of pediatrics and three months of internal medicine and three months of surgery and three months of gynecology. And I figured after that, I'd know what I wanted to do. And the first rotation was pediatrics. And after about two months in there, the guy said to me, you know, you'd make a really good pediatrician. Why don't you switch and just become a pediatrician? And that's what I did. So I did three years in the pediatric residency. I was at UC, uh, University of California in San Diego. And um, and then I spent two year, uh, a year being a chief resident there. So there was a training program with about 25 docs. And they picked the one, one guy for an extra year to, to help run the program. And I did that. And then I did a fellowship in infectious diseases where we did both pediatrics and adult infectious disease. And it was the early 80s. It was, and the, um, we had all these very unusual infections in the hospital from these guys. Nobody knew what AIDS was at the time, but mm -hmm. that's what it turned out to be. So I did that and I, then I became a, an infectious disease control officer in a big, uh, big community hospital. And I then switched careers and went into emergency medicine. And in about 1995, my wife had gotten very interested in health and wellness. She's a registered nurse and she started going to meetings where she would learn about nutritional medicine and, and nutritional biochemistry. And one of the things she learned was that mercury was bad for you. And if you put it in your mouth, it was really bad for you. And that the silver fillings that many people have in their mouths, especially in those days, were half mercury and the rest of it was silver, tin, and copper. Mm -hmm. And so she decided that she wanted to get them out because what she learned is that if you ate something hot, like you had a hot cup of coffee or soup or something, and the temperature might be, you know, 150, 180 degrees, that the mercury that's in the fillings could boil. Because, you know, mercury at room temperature is a liquid. And if you heat it up to over 110, it turns into a gas. Mm. So she had had not very good teeth growing up. And all her molars, uh, you know, six on the bottom and uh, on each side and six on the top on each side, or three on the top on each side, um, had big mercury fillings. And so she went to a dentist and she said, get these out of me. And he took his high-speed drill 
which produces a fair amount of temperature, and he drilled them out. And about six weeks later, she didn't feel very well. And when she told me what she'd done, I was not really happy with her. because I didn't, like, you know, you've had these things for 40 years. Why are you, why are you even messing with them? And she told me the whole thing, and I didn't really understand it, and I didn't buy it. And but she got ill. She, she her thyroid started to hurt, and her liver started to hurt. Uh, I was in the hospital, emergency room, and I knew all the good doctors. So I had her seeing a thyroid specialist and a liver specialist, and they couldn't find out what was wrong with her except they they said she had some kind of an autoimmune condition, like mm-hmm. her body was kind of rejecting itself. So, and then one morning she wakes up and she's in the bathroom and she calls me and she says, you know, I can't lift my arm up. I'm trying to brush my teeth, but my deltoid is, is weak on that side. And uh, turned out her glute muscle on that side was weak too. And she's an athlete. She's a very good triathlete. Uh, she's a podium level triathlete. Mm-hmm. And uh, so like, oh my God, what's this now? So I sent her to the neurologist. The neurologist said, it looks like she's got MS and she needs steroids and all the interferon, all this like toxic medicine. And I didn't know what to do. I knew a lot about heart attacks and gunshot wounds and broken hips and, you know, emergency stuff. But I didn't know what this was. Uh, as a nurse, she she has a home healthcare nursing business and a dentist had moved in next door in the little shopping area or in the little, the, the office area where she was. And on the sign on his marquee, it said natural dentistry. And one day when I went to pick her up, uh, he was walking out to his car and I just stopped him and said, Hey, introduce myself. My wife, you know, her business is here. Uh, and I said, by the way, what's natural dentistry? And he said, Oh, that's easy. He said, most dentists have the idea that the mouth isn't really in the body. You know, that you could do things in the mouth that no physician would ever do in the body. Like who would put mercury in a bone or in a joint or on a wound? Mm-hmm. Because it's very poisonous. Said, but dentists do it all the time. They don't think anything of it. You know, they'll do a root canal and they'll, they'll, they'll drill out the blood supply in the tooth and they'll kill the nerve in the tooth and they'll leave it in the mouth and it's infected. And then the body has no defense against it. So I said, holy smokes, that makes sense. And so I then told him the story of my wife and I hadn't really associated the mercury with her problem and neither had any doctor I had seen. And he said, oh, she's mercury toxic. No one around here is going to help you. There's a doctor in Seattle and he does training programs for doctors to learn how to manage this. And you better go there. So I went there and I hopped on a plane and I spent, uh, he did a number of courses. I did all his courses and I came back and I tried the stuff that I learned on her. And when we did the test for mercury, it turned out her blood mercury levels were very high. She was mercury toxic. And then he had a kind of a natural way to get the stuff out of your body. And I did that. And over about uh, four or five months, she completely recovered. Her thyroid went normal. Her liver went normal. And all the muscle weakness that she had went normal. And we had friends who were sort of watching this. And they started calling me like, hey, I've got rheumatoid arthritis. Or I've got chronic migraines. Or, you know, I've got this or that. Can you help me? And I wasn't sure that I could because I had a success, you know, population of one Mm -hmm. but uh in her nursing office she had a spare room and i said well okay you know tuesday afternoons i'm going to be over there why don't you come over and we'll just play and i'll see if i can help you and i i'm not going to charge you because i'm not sure i know what i'm doing but i started to do that and we had some just tremendous success with people like they started to get better and they'd been seeing doctors for years for what they you know what was wrong with them and um it just i it got so busy that i left the emergency room and I started doing it full time. And now we have a very large facility here with 50 staff and, you know, uh, two nurse practitioners and another physician. And, and it's, um, and people come to see us from all over the world with mostly things that their doctors haven't fixed, you know, like we deal a lot with cancer and Lyme disease and chronic fatigue and MS and dementia and, you know, uh, fibromyalgia and, you know, things that most doctors don't have a very good solution to. 
and we're able to really help most of those people. So uh, we've been going doing this now since 1997, and uh, it's loads of fun. And um, and the only other thing about me that's that that that's like my my hobby is Ironman triathlon. So I've done 43 of them, and I'm training for my next one. So it's um, I have a busy life between work and practice and. In, in early 2000, when we were seeing a lot of patients that had heavy toxicity, we were able to find good remedies that were safe that would help someone get the mercury out of their body. And I got together with a guy who was a Harvard biochemist, and we formulated some products to help detoxify heavy metals. And our our, the product that we came up with was called, we called it metal free and it's a bestseller in the space. And we ended up with a nutrition company called body health. And so now we have about 25 products and we sell both to physicians and on the internet. So that keeps me busy too, because there's a lot of research and development with new products and, uh, and education for doctors on how to use those products. So that's kind of my life in a, in a nutshell. No, no, it's very, very interesting. Lots of different areas we can dive into here. So, with regard to um, like the interventions that you did with with your wife initially, and then the the patients you had going forward, was that mostly nutritional interventions, or what what were you doing exactly there? It's a combination of kind of the if you look at someone who's not doing well, you can often reduce it to sort of two categories. One is they have things in their body that shouldn't be there that function as toxins or infections. So in her case, it was a mercury overload. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's a Lyme bacteria or it's an Epstein-Barr virus or it's parasites or yeasts. So half the equation is they have stuff in them that they're not supposed to have. And you have to then be able to get rid of those things. You know, if it's an infection, you have to treat it. If it's a toxin, you have to get it out. And there's all sort of different kinds of nutritional ways to get the liver and the kidney and the lymph system to dump stuff, or you can put things in that will bind it and then the body can get rid of it. Um, or if it's some kind of infection, you can treat it. The other half is that often people suffer from actual deficiencies their zinc is low or selenium's low or their omega-3 fats are low or amino acids are low. And you have to be able to then put those things back in in order for the body to function at the level that it's supposed to. And nowadays we have very good complete testing that we can do so we can find the things that are in them that shouldn't be and we can find the things that aren't in them that should be so that then the treatment plan is restoring both of those to normal. So they have, you know, their body has the vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and essential fats that it needs. And it doesn't have the infectious or the toxic particles that are in there. And then it's built to run and it's built to function. And then it can function. You know, the malfunction, the thing, the disease, the, 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 the pain, the, lo the loss of energy is always a combination of those two things. And unfortunately, sort of a, a normal medical approach to these things is generally symptomatic control using pharmaceuticals. So not really working at what caused this in the first place. You know, all these people were normal before and then they weren't normal. You know, they had energy and then they didn't, or they, they, now they have pain and before they didn't, or they can't sleep uh, now, but they could before. Um, and we just, you just have to find what are those underlying factors and then the body will respond and it will heal and it will get better. And uh, even in some situations where things look really awful, um, you can get them to actually get better so that they can have a, a nice life and a future. So when, when a patient comes in, for instance, and perhaps they don't have uh, the wherewithal as to what it is that's ailing them, they just know they don't feel optimal. 
is there like a yeah. battery of tests, like blood blood tests that are that are performed to see kind of where they may be deficient or where they may have some toxicity, or how is that first step usually orchestrated? Yeah, I mean, so the first step is talking to them and getting a full story of, of what happened, and then a very detailed physical examination and a and an examination that also includes their sort of body energy systems. And then we look at their blood on a microscope. We can get a whole bunch of information on that from looking at the tissue. And then we do blood, urine, uh, saliva, and stool tests where we can actually, you can put all the, I can put all these things together so that then I know, look, they're deficient in X, Y, Z. They have these toxins, they have these infections. And then the treatment plan is to actually get all those things back to normal. And usually within, six to 12 weeks that occurs like they, you know, and, and a lot of the treatments that we're using are not sort of regular things. Like one of the big modalities that we use is ozone. Ozone is a form of oxygen. So oxygen is very healing in the body, but it's also anti-infection. Like mm -hmm. you can kill bacteria with ozone. They put ozone in swimming pools uh, and an air freshener system so that, because they will bind toxins and they will kill bacteria and viruses and parasites and things like that. So um, we use uh, pulse magnetic fields and we use, uh, you know, herbs and homeopathics. We have a whole bunch of different ways to go about it where we're not giving the body added drugs or toxins because usually they're already on too many of those and it's part of what's making someone sick. So we're trying to use natural remedies that the body will recognize and will accept that don't then cause further problems with the body. And all this is incredibly counter to the traditional medical upbringing that you had in the disease control and uh, and, and wound, in, wound injury, I would imagine. So this is a very stark contrast. It's very contrasted. and But see, there is a place for the other medicine. If I... If someone came in here and they have a temperature of 104 and they have, you know, I listen to their lungs and they have pneumonia, I would in a second give them a shot of antibiotic and, you know, 10 days to take because they could be really deathly sick from that. And this is a, you know, this would be a, a, a medication that could really help them or save their life. Mm -hmm. If someone had a burst appendix or they needed a C-section, there are asthma or in their middle of having a heart attack. There are aspects of modern medicine which are which are brilliant and life-saving. So I'm not against modern medicine in that sense. But if you have someone with chronic high blood pressure or erectile dysfunction or chronic fatigue or, you know, um, acid reflux and cramps and constipation or joint swelling and pain, the modern stuff doesn't really fix it. It might get someone some relief temporarily, but then usually the medicines themselves cause further problems. And, you know, when I was in the emergency room, it was very common for the patients to come in, like if they were a nursing home patient, and they'd be on 12 medications. Mm -hmm. And who knows what effects those are having. It's, it's sort of too many to even think with. So my goal is pharmaceuticals as a last resort. And if we, if I do my job right, then um, they're going to get off their pharmaceuticals and they're going to get better and their energy is going to go better and their pain is going to go away and they're going to feel good. Uh, and you can't really do that with pharmaceuticals. Now, I, I confess, I don't really spend a whole lot of time in uh, any modern medicine facility, so I don't really know how the whole system is, is set up from experience. But generally speaking, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, but uh, like if someone has you know a, a significant issue, they'll go to an emergency room and they'll be directed to a specialist uh, from there. It, with with common ailments like like you're describing with GI distress, uh, any of that, they would typically go to their general family doctor, who would then prescribe some you know, over-the-counter or prescription drug that they're familiar with, or they would direct them to a specialist. But either way, neither scenario really looks at it from an underlying holistic, uh, you know, foundational approach. It's, it's very uh, symptomatic treatment, not so much fixing the underlying cause. 
Well, 100%. I mean, how many people have gone to a GI doctor because they have uh, reflux or they have heartburn? And the doctor writes them a prescription for Nexium or Pepsid or one of the acid blockers and says, uh, that'll fix you. And then uh, three years later, the patient's still on the drug and, uh, and it's keeping their heartburn in check. But little do they know that if you drugs should not be used for longer than two or three weeks because use of these drugs, which block stomach acid, can lead to malabsorption of minerals. So you get deficiencies in magnesium, zinc, and selenium. Mm-hmm. That the rate of stomach cancer is much higher if these drugs are used long term. That people are unable to digest proteins. Uh, that the risk of stomach cancer goes way, way up. And th- this is not good medicine. It's terrible medicine. Now, if someone had a bleeding ulcer, I'd use these drugs too. But I would try to get them off in a month or two and figure out, like, what were the triggers for that ulcer? Do they have some kind of infection? Do they have some kind of toxin that they're taking in that caused it? so that we could then actually solve the problem without keeping a, a band-aid, so to speak, uh, which is what this medication is, on that. And, you know, people are educated every day on the television set. They're, I don't see it running lately, but there used to be this ad of the guy goes to the Italian restaurant and he has a he has some kind of a hoagie with, you know, onions and tomato sauce and garlic, and he gets a stomach ache and he doesn't like it. The, the recommendation on the ad is, well, just take your Pepsid AC before you go there and you'll be fine. Yeah. And that is like the stupidest thing that you could ever think of. Mm-hmm. That's just like completely stupid. Your body's telling you something. And then you're using a drug. It's almost like you're working around very hot equipment. And now and then you get burned so that you learn that you shouldn't touch that or you should be careful. But if you went to the doctor and said, you know, I'm touching this occasionally and I'm getting burned. And the doctor says, well, I got a solution for that. I'm just going to give you a cream that you put on your hands and it's an anesthetic. So you won't feel the hot, you know, you're, you know, and then he's going to burn himself and he's going to get hurt. And the same thing with, you know, well, you got high blood pressure. You just take this medicine or you've got, you know, blockage in your heart arteries. Well, you just take this medicine or, you know, you've got joint swelling. Well, you just, we're just going to give you this medicine. that's going to turn off your immune system. And no matter that your risk of cancer, of getting TB, of other stuff is, goes way up, but this is how we do it, and this is just what we do. It's like, it, it's like it's not good medicine. You know, it isn't, it isn't really getting the patient to a point where, they're, where you're offering something that's going to actually be the best for them long term, and that's what we're trying to do. And, and usually we're successful at it. And correct me if I'm wrong too, but like the the way everything is structured in modern medicine, it, it's and I, I don't want to be mis misspeaking here, so definitely correct me if I'm wrong. But it's it's structured in a way that really incentivizes the doctors to prescribe uh, drugs because like the compensation is largely based off of the number of drugs drugs prescribed. Is that roughly accurate? Well, it's downstream from that. See, a lot of the medical education is because of pharmaceutical grants. So mm-hmm. the medical schools can't exist on tuition. So pharmaceutical grants supply a lot of the money to fund medical schools. And then, so medical schools teach pharmaceutical medicine because that's where their money's coming from. Mm. Now, doctors don't generally get, you know, I mean, there may be some kickbacks with, uh, you know, football tickets and hockey tickets and, you know, trips and stuff from drug companies. But mostly doctors are educated that the patient has a complaint or a symptom. The average doctor encounter with a patient is between six and 10 minutes. So you've got to be fast. I think doctors are trying to help people, but the way the insurance system is structured is they have very little time. They need a quick solution. They actually want to help the patients. I think most doctors really are well-intentioned people. You know, they got in the profession because they wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. It's a lousy profession if you're what you're trying to do is just make money because it's way too hard. You know, I was in school till I was 30, 
four years old with enormous amounts of money spent on education. And most doctors work probably 60 or 70 hours a week. And so it's not, you know, it's, it's, there's way better ways to go into something to make money. Mm -hmm. So I think doctors are mostly driven by, they want to help people. And the way that they've learned how to do it in very short time. So you have six to 10 minutes, you've got to have a solution. You don't have drug. This will help you see you. I, you know, my next one is in the next room waiting and I've got to see, you know, 35, 40 a day. And I, that's, you know, that's how the system is built. Uh, but it, for, for, you know, and, and the United States is the prime example of this. And we have the most expensive healthcare in the world by far. And our longevity is in the, I think we're 29th on the list of how long you live. Uh, and 28 countries are better and they have probably a quarter of our medical budgets. One of the, one of the most interesting things is that when there's some countries that have socialized medicine, two 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 common ones are Israel and um, and Great Britain, mm-hmm. and the government pays for everybody, and the doctors are salaried by the government, and occasionally they feel like they're not making enough money and they go on strike, and when doctors go on strike the death rate in those countries goes down. You know, like medicine is, you're better off usually, not always. You know, if you're having a heart attack, get to a hospital. Right, right. But for most stuff, grandma's remedy, you know, some uh, ginger tea with garlic in it or, you know, you know, there. I mean, there is there are better ways that are safer to help people, but um, doctors aren't educated in it. The nutritional education in medical school is not much. And when I did this, I had to basically go redo my whole education. Mm-hmm. I'm happy I got the traditional education, but to learn about other ways to diagnose things and and herbal and homeopathic medicine and IV you know, vitamins and minerals and ozone and, you know, and nutritional biochemistry. These are, I, I've, you know, I've, I got, had to get a whole new education. I have a, I have a new physician that's, that's joined me now that I'm working with and her head is spinning, you know, just she's, she's spending, you know, her days with me so that I can train her and how this goes. And I'm loading her up at night with textbooks of, nutritional biochemistry and herbology so that she can learn this stuff. And it'll take her about two or three years of, you know, eight hours a day working in it to actually get a mastery of it so that she can really do it. And she's fully medical educated. She's an emergency room doctor. She's been in the field for 15 years. She's super smart, but it's a different education. And uh, if you don't have it, you can't do it. And and most doctors coming out of school, they they don't have it because it's not what's taught. So, why? I mean, I'm starting to see a trend in you know traditionally educated doctors breaking free from that traditional medicine, um, you know, and and pursuing this natural medicine, um, you know, uh, natural remedies as a more holistic way to treat their patients. Now, is that because they've they've interacted with patients that have seen great success using traditional methods? Is that because there's just more content and information out there and the doctors are reading up on that on their own time and, and, and wanting to break free from the what they've learned in traditional medicine? Like, What's often the catalyst for traditionally educated doctors to break off and start their own practice following these more natural remedies? I think it's both things. I think right now it's much easier to get the education. You know, there's organizations now that have training programs for physicians where they can do, you know, a long weekend every three months and in two years get a certification and a diploma in in um, in some form of alternative or holistic medicine. And they're big organizations, they're very professional, they re- you really get a good education and it's much more accessible. 
And a lot of it can be done online. So you can just do it online and learn it. And then you go spend some time with someone who, you know, like an internship or a preceptorship where, where you can get it. So it's way easier. When I started, I was, you know, we were, we were just like searching everywhere for who knows something, who's getting results, call them up. Do you teach it? Could I spend a couple of days with you in your office? You know, I, we, we had no direction. Now there's very good direction. There's the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. I think too that, that there's so much more awareness that medicals, medicine in some aspects is failing. Mm-hmm. Most guys who go into it want to be successful. They want to see success in their patients. And they want to go to bed at night feeling like they did the best job they could. And that if all day long they prescribed, you know, diabetes drugs and arthritis drugs and hypertension drugs, it gets to be a grind. It isn't much fun. You don't have enough time for real patient interaction. The monetary system is always through third parties. See, in my practice, the patient pays me directly. We don't take any insurance. They pay for the services that they get. I am a very dedicated to them because they, they, I, there has to be an exchange. They are paying me in exchange for me really helping them. Mm-hmm. And when you have a third party in the middle, which is an insurance company, which tells the doctor, you can't order that test. You can't do that procedure. Even if the doctor believes that's the best thing, he can't do it. And so his relationship with the patient gets broken because he's under time crunch, he's under financial crunch, and many of us are under legal crunch. You know, there's a gazillion lawyers out there who like to go after doctors and sue them. Now, sometimes it's justified, but a lot of times it's not. And um, so doctors are practicing medicine. When I worked in the emergency room, if I had a 20-year-old that came in with chest pain, they would get a $15,000 workup because I had to make sure they didn't have a heart attack. Well, the chances of a 20-year-old with chest pain having a heart attack is low, really low. But if I, as an emergency room doc, missed a heart attack, you know, I listened to them and it turned out that they were, you know, they, they were um, playing rugby and they get it up at the bottom of the pile and eight guys were on top of them and they crunched their chest and they were breathing and they had chest pain. And I knew that it was a traumatic problem. They had a rib out of place or a a minor fracture of a rib or, you know, just a, a, a soft tissue injury. If that person ever came back in, you know, the next day and they actually were the one in a million having a heart attack, you'd be sued from now to Sunday. So the practice of medicine became cover your cover your behind. Yeah. Because the you know there's lawyers and they have to make a living too and people oftentimes don't take responsibility for what happens to them and they want you know they want money from somebody. And so medicine has gotten to where it's you know it it's 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 not it's not right. And so what I can say is I am, I am, it's me and the patient and nobody else. I think, I, and think that, I don't sleep nights when I haven't figured out what's wrong with that person because really I am in it to make them better. Mm-hmm. And like today I had a, I, the last patient before I'm, I'm, uh, I was started talking to you was a lady who came in here with stage four breast cancer. It turns out that her husband, who's an architect, actually did a design project for me not very long ago. And I had never met his wife and I had no idea. And he brings her in here with stage four breast cancer where she's in awful pain and it's hard for her to move around. And the cancer has gotten into her bones. And we treat these kind of patients. We actually specialize in these kind of patients. And I know that if she went to the cancer hospital, she probably would, her, her chances of surviving five years are about 5%. They're very poor. 
and the high dose chemo that she would get would probably do her more damage than good mm -hmm. if they even decided to take her on. And I'm seeing her back now in three months and she is walking around. She is making dinner and lunch. She is taking care of her children. She is in no pain. And her numbers for her cancer are one quarter of what they were when we started. You know, she's not cured, but she's doing great. And, and she feels great. And, you know, for me, that's a home run. It's a home run. And that's it, what I work for. Uh, but it's been me and them the whole time. And at first it was rocky. She got an eye kind of feel where you can really change people's lives. You can really help them. And it's just me and them. There's nobody else in between. And that's, I think if medicine went back to that, that doctors would have much higher satisfaction in what they're doing. They could really practice good medicine and, um, and the whole field would change. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I look at what modern medicine is now, and and as you've pointed out, I mean, there's there's some there's some incredible highlights in it. There's some like if I you know cut my arm off chainsawing out in the woods, I want to go to a hospital emergency room with modern medicine. Uh, that makes sense. Um, but from like a nutritional standpoint, from like a underlying ba baseline you know foundational standpoint, I think looking at it through this more holistic lens and removing as many variables and just third parties. Uh, such as you see with the insurance companies, makes the most sense. There's just more of a connection between the doctor and the patient, and the doctor's seeing a more holistic approach as to how to cure and help the patient. Um, and I'm seeing this all the time with, with with people across the across the spectrum, and that's been incredibly encouraging to see because it's just so different from the trajectory that's been taking place uh, in modern medicine over the past you know 20, 50 years. Um, with with what you've seen with all the patients you've worked with just some of the the trends and commonalities have you uh seen like the dietary intervention and you know a low carbohydrate approach um you know more of a ketogenic approach being an underlying reason for a lot of the success to to be coming about or what have you just noticed with regard to you know trends and pattern recognition in that department yeah um you know i think the 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 food supply is very damaged and most of the food that people eat is really poison. It's not food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fast food and packaged and processed food isn't what we need and it isn't any good for us. So I think there is an awareness that nutrition does make a difference. Organic is really important, like really, really important. And that the source of your food, um, is, is really very much tied to how healthy you will be. Um, we use a number of different diets depending on what the problem is. And it's never a one size fits all. Uh, some people come in with their gastrointestinal tract so messed up. They've been on so many antibiotics or they have eaten so badly that their intestine is just ruined. And they would require a certain kind of very elemental diet, like a GAPS diet, like a diet where it's, you know, it's bone broth and some minerals and some cooked vegetables. It's very, very light because they can't really take any more mm -hmm. at that point in the way they are. This woman that I just was telling you about with breast cancer, most, almost all of the cancer patients that we see, we put them on a very strict ketogenic diet. Like their ketone levels, we, we have them measured there. We give them all a breathalyzer. They have to check their ketone levels. And I put them on a, a transcutaneous glucose monitor so they can check their blood sugar, you know, just putting their phone next to their arm and they get, they get an immediate blood sugar. And I want their blood sugar in the 70s and I want their ketone level in the threes to fours. And you know, you got to be really strict to get that. They're on yep. about 1,200 calories. 80% of the calories are fat. Our dietitian spends an hour with them to like show them how to do it. And it's a way, and we do it because it'll starve the cancer. The cancer wants glucose. It wants carbs. And part of the success in cancer patients is to not give them any and keep them in a ketotic state. So, um, all our cancer patients, we put them on a ketogenic diet in that sort of way. Um, the other area where I see it working really well is anybody with any kind of neurological condition. Mm -hmm. It might be a neuropathy or a Lyme patient or a mold patient that can't think or they're 
like hypersensitive um, or they're super anxious or they can't sleep and their brain is literally on fire with inflammation. And a ketogenic diet is very, very much puts out the fire. It reduces inflammation in the nervous system in most people in a big way. Now, I don't calorie restrict those people. The cancer patients, we generally calorie restrict. Mm -hmm. But in those people, I don't. But I still want them in, in, in good ketosis. And uh, it can make a huge difference. Their pain gets better and their whole function gets better and their, their nervous system calms down. You know, we combine that with hyperbaric oxygen and all, uh, different kinds to, to help them regenerate their nervous system. Uh, but they can't, I tell them, look, it, you know, if you're going to have breakfast at McDonald's and, you know, you're going to eat a, a, a uh, TV dinner, you, it isn't going to work. It just isn't going to work. You just have to get your mindset around food is medicine. And it's really important in the medicine we do because you've been eating your, your medicine has been poisoned for probably much of your life and, and your health reflects it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, uh, it's so refreshing to hear medical professionals saying those exact words. It, it, I'm eating it up. Um, have you noticed any any patients that you've put on a ketogenic or low-carb diet experience any adverse effects, like legitimate adverse effects from that, that type of eating, or has that not been yeah. the case? Oh, no, I do. And, 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 you know, every patient is an experiment of one, but some people can't take the fat. Mm-hmm. They don't have a gallbladder or they have a gallbladder that's not functioning or they're fat sensitive and they can't take the fat. It makes them sick. Um, it gives them cramps and we give them bile salts and bile acids. And we try to work around it, but sometimes you just can't, it just won't go. It's like, okay, you can't do it. It's to, you know, your body just will not take this at this point. So mm-hmm. then I would modify it. The other thing that we see is, uh, and this is especially in cancer patients, a lot of them come in here already too thin and too broken down mm. and they can't eat enough fat to make enough calories to keep them from losing weight. And I, if, if a person is losing weight, I sometimes have to add a meal a day of some white rice, some sweet potatoes because they just, can't get enough to hold calories. Yeah. Now, I have a great story of a guy. Can I tell everyone this story when they come in? I said, look, if you go on a ketogenic diet and you do, you know, you mix it with sort of a, you know, a 16 hour fast every day, uh, it will be good for most people. But most people lose weight. And, uh, so if you're 25 pounds overweight, that'll be good for you. But mm-hmm. if your ideal weight's 125 and you're 109 or 108, you just got out of the hospital and, and you're looking like, you know, like, like you're really lean and malnourished. I want to try you on a ketogenic diet, but it may not work. Now, a few years ago, I had a guy come in. He was diagnosed with colon cancer and he, the cancer had spread to his liver. Now that's a really bad situation. And he came in at about 260, he's 5'10". He was pretty chunky. And I put him on a ketogenic diet and he was really good with it. Mm-hmm. And over four months, he went from 260 to 190 and he did the rest of our program and when we repeated his scan, his PET scan, his cancer was done. We, we didn't find anything. The scan was normal. Nice. And he looked great and he felt great. And he was supposed to follow up with me in six weeks and he didn't come back and he didn't answer the calls and we lost him to follow up. And three years later, he strolls back in and has an appointment with me. And I thought, oh, brother, I saw his name on the list and his cancer's back. You know, he didn't follow up. We, you know, and he came in and I looked at him and he's back up to 260. So he said, I said, what about, you know, what about your cancer? He said, no, I'm good. I just had a colonoscopy. I had a scan. I, I, 
moved out of town and I was seeing somebody there and they've been following me and my cancer's fine. I don't have cancer, but I have this other problem. So I said, okay, that's good. I'll try to help you with your other problem. Uh, I said, what are you eating these days? He said, well, oh, I'm on a ketogenic diet. I said, I know that was like very, very helpful in my getting, beating this cancer. So I said, well, how's that? He said, you came in at 260, you're on a ketogenic diet. Four months later, you're at 190. Now it's three years later, you tell me you're still on a ketogenic diet and you're back up to 260. How does that work? And his wife looks at me because she's sitting in the room with us and she says, well, he got addicted to butter, like an ice cream cone and he eats it straight. And he used to do it in public, but now it's so embarrassing that I make him go in the kitchen when he eats his butter. Now, <laughs> so he was just way overdoing the calories and all the fat calories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, people some and, people make the mistake that when you're on a ketogenic diet, you can just eat whatever because the hormones are in check and you don't have to worry about the calorie count, but that's just not the case. It is not the case. It's not the case. Yeah. And in most people, they will lose weight and it will work really well for them. But I I found um I have I have done the I started doing the ketogenic diet four or five years ago, and I was I was trying to do it for um, uh, first on a lark just to try because I always try things before I bring them into clinic, mm-hmm. and um, and I found that I could I was overeating fat, and I was actually I I, I, I at first I lost weight, but then I started to gain weight, and it, I had to I had to cut it back. It was too it was too much, and I'm exercising a lot. I mean, I'm doing Ironman training most of the year, so I'm. You know, I'm I'm doing 15 hours of exercise every week, swimming, bike, and run. So, it's it's uh, even with that, um, you can out you can overdo the fat, and mm-hmm. it will add on to your hips. Speaking of the Ironman, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you again? 72. 72, and you're doing you've done what was it 43 or 44 Ironmans? Yeah, 43. And you've got another one coming up. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I have two two halves. One in um, one in uh, April and one in June, and then I'm doing a, a full at in Chattanooga uh, in September. I mean that that's that's pretty badass to be frank. I mean you don't see too many people your age absolutely killing it with Ironmans, putting in 15 hours of training every week. I mean you're doing something right for sure. Well, you know I'm living. I'm I I half of the interest in this stuff is is just my own health and my family's health. So, you know, I'm always reading, I'm always experimenting and I'm trying to keep my, keep my fitness level. And you're right. There's very few people my age that could do an Ironman um, or train for an Ironman and not, you know, and not get injured. Mm -hmm. So it's, but it, I think, and I don't have the best genetics in the world. Like my dad had his first heart attack at 52 and mm-hmm. he had a bypass, you know, quadruple bypass, and eventually died because his his, his aorta ruptured. And my brothers had quadruple bypass, and my other brother has diabetes and heart disease, and my sister has diabetes and is very overweight. You know, my grandfather, same thing, died of heart disease. And so, you know, my my genetic profile. Every time I I've done genetic testing on myself three different times. And when I look at the results, it's so depressing. I don't usually even print it out because it looks bad on paper. Mm-hmm. But lifestyle is 90 plus percent of everything. And dialing in the right diet and the right you know, exercise and sleep balance and the rest of the important things really does make the difference. And that most people have way more control over their health and their longevity than they would even dream of and but it does take some discipline and and just rehabitualizing yourself you know like a like i tell the patients 60 days to a new habit you got to do it every day for 60 days and then it will it will become natural and it will feel natural but you know if you've gone two days without having a uh you know a candy bar or something like that, uh, 
you got to make it through that extra day or it's not going to be long enough to produce any kind of result that you want. 100% agree. I mean, you're you're a, an A1 example of how to structure this in a sustainable way because, I mean, I mean, you're, you're just getting better every day, so you're doing something right for sure. Um, I, there's there's so many different things I want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. We've we've already been in almost an hour here, but I I wanted to talk about your book uh, for a moment here at the end. Um, Quest for the Perfect Protein. What what is that about? It's kind of a, give us a little little overview of what what you've learned in writing that. So, um, the name of the book is the Search for the Perfect Protein, and the what I learned and a lot of this stuff is is. is trying to prove myself and I ran into a barrier and I tried to figure it out just like with my wife I ran into a barrier and I'm kind of stubborn you know mm-hmm. like I don't I, I I will work something until I either figure it out uh, or it goes away that's just how I'm my personality so I um, I injured my hamstring training for an Ironman mm-hmm. and um, I could not get it to really heal stably you know, I would, it would feel better, but then I would do a hard, I'd go to the track and I would try to do some hard running and I would feel it twinge. And I knew that if I kept going, I was going to really tear it and I just couldn't get it to get better. And so I'm on a relentless search. You know, I'm seeing massage therapists and chiropractors and electrical stim and I'm injecting it, you know, like I have access to everything. Uh, and it wasn't working. And I met somebody and he said, uh, hey, I got some supplements that I want you to try. They're amino acids. I got them over in Europe. Why don't you try it? And I t- gave me a couple of bottles and I took a couple of bottles of this stuff. And after about six weeks, I thought I'm going to test it. And I went over to the track and I started doing some some quarter miles at, at, at an elevated pace. And the leg was good. Like I went home. It didn't ache. I didn't have to ice it. I didn't have to do anything to it. It was like good. And so then I started to work hard. And uh, a couple months later, I went to Ironman Canada. I'd done the race 10 times before. I had my best race. And I noticed that my body, uh, my one of the things that I was tracking was maximum heart rate. And my maximum heart rate went from 174 to 186. Like I was seeing a performance change in my body from changing a dietary supplement, which was amino acids. And so I started to measure people in the clinic and myself blood levels of amino acids. And what I found is that all vegans, all vegetarians virtually have amino acid deficiencies in their bodies because their food doesn't have enough stuff in it to nurture them the way our bodies were were sort of evolved. Mm -hmm. That many high-end athletes, I was working with some of the best cyclists and triathletes in the world. And that many of them had amino acid deficiencies in their body. And all people with chronic illness, like all the tired menopausal women, all the people that complained that their hair wasn't growing and then their nails were soft, and all the people that were depressed or anxious or couldn't sleep or had osteoporosis, they were all amino acid deficient. And I started to, I got this, this mixture and played with the mixture till I got it to what I felt was ideal and started to give it to patients in the clinic. And I got the same results that happened with me. They would start to feel more energy. Their bone density went up. Their hormone levels improved. Their chronic pain got helped. And so the the i have this this uh, nutritional company and we manufacture these now it's called perfect amino and if you go on the body the company's called body health so bodyhealth.com if you go on the website and read the testimonials on perfect amino there are there are there are too many to even put on there of people who added this as a dietary supplement and what difference it made in their in their life. And so the book, The Search for the Perfect Protein, is kind of my story. And then many, many stories of patients on why does this work? Um, why is this such a common problem? 
and um, and uh, it's so I I recommend that people try it because it can really make a difference, no matter how good you think your nutrition is. Is there like a specific amino acid, like leucine? I mean, is there like a specific amino acid, or is it just like the whole gamut of essential amino acids? I mean, what what what's the the missing block here? Well, there's there's actually eight essential amino acids, and the the trick is, or the the brilliance of it is, um, it's not mine. Somebody else somebody else actually figured this out. Uh, is that when you take amino acids, these eight essential amino acids, the ratio of one to another has to be just right. And if it's just right, then the body takes the edge of the amino acids that are in the meat, gets made into his body protein, and it's only about 33%. If you eat eggs, about 48% of the amino acids in that egg get used by the body to make protein. If you take uh, rice protein, uh, you know, rice protein or plant protein, under 10% of the amino acids in that are actually made, utilized by the body to make protein. This stuff, perfect amino, 99% of it goes into making body protein. And that means bones and livers and kidneys, but it also means immune systems. It means hormones. It means detoxification enzymes. So since most people are deficient, by adding this in, their body gets an upgrade in every sector. Everything will just work better. And so that's the that's the the why it's so good. What out of curiosity, what is the uh, the the highest percent uptake in in a natural food source uh, currently? So is, is eggs you, you cut out a little bit? Is eggs the highest in nature? Uh, breast milk is the highest. Breast milk is the highest. Gotcha. What's the percentage? Breast milk is, is 49% utilized for to make body protein. Eggs are 48. Meat and fish are 33. Soy and dairy are about between 16 and 17. Gotcha. All the gotcha. plant proteins are under 10. Spirulina is under 6. So there's a, you know, whey, whey protein is only 16%. Collagen is is just a little bit it's it's actually zero but it might be a little bit more so a lot of the sorry it's raining here and i have a tin roof and it's probably noisy no you're good um the the promotional education that people get is so wrong that most of the things that people are eating thinking that they're supplementing protein uh it isn't working at all and uh, and if they tried Perfect Amino, they'd see something that really did work. And there's a lot of people, I mean, like in the bodybuilding space, in the fitness industry, I mean, supplemental branch chain amino acids, for instance, are one, probably one of the most highly, um, you know, publicized and promoted products. Uh, but there's always been a question as to the efficacy of supplementing with like a branch chain amino acid. I mean, it's not a full spectrum amino acid. So I'm assuming that's not really going to give you very much bang for your buck. It gives you no bang for your buck. All it does is give you calories. It doesn't work at all. And there's no scientific evidence that it improves protein synthesis. It can't. You need all eight to make a protein. And branch chain are only three of the eight. So it's all hype and smoke and mirrors. It's 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 completely worthless and you're wasting your time. You might as well eat a banana. Yeah. And if you know, I had a I I I've worked with a lot of fitness guys and there's a there's a very famous place in Miami which 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 trains real high-end athletes, and he's he had them on 200 grams a day of whey protein, mm-hmm. and all those guys had gastric upset, bloating, and and, and but he said, "Look, you got to do it because I need to get this protein in you." And I said, "If you guys, if you gave them 10 tablets of Perfect Amino twice a day, all their bloating and gas will go away. You will get six times better use of this than you do with whey protein." And he called me back in two months and he said, "I can't believe the difference." And they're all loving me because now they're not all walking around bloated with gas and diarrhea because half of them are are intolerant to milk protein and they couldn't take it. And he said, there's absolutely no side effects to this. And the gains we're getting are just like amazing compared to to what we were getting before. And that's the that is the that is exactly what happens with people uh, across the board. It really is. um, And and virtually nobody. I mean, I won't say nobody, but the side effects of it 
are almost none. And there's no interactions with any medications. So if people are on medications, it won't interfere with their medications. So it's very safe. And millions of people have used it. And, and um, really, it, it, uh, it really works. And if you're, if, you know, and you just add it to the diet that you're on. If you are a vegetarian, you need more because yeah. I, but if you're eating a paleo diet or, you know, in the, well, in the, this is true too. This is especially uh, to the keto community. There are quite a few people doing keto where they have to restrict proteins or they'll go out of ketosis. Mm-hmm. They can't eat enough protein because the protein gets turned into, when you have a, let's say about 33% of the amino acids in that steak, which is what the protein's made out of, are going to get used by your body for making your body protein. Mm-hmm. But 67% is going to get turned into glucose. The nitrogen in the amino acid is going to get taken off and it's going to get turned into glucose. Now that can be burned or it can be stored as glycogen or fat, but it's going to raise, you know, it's going to possibly raise insulin and possibly raise blood sugar. Yeah. And so I have had people where, huh? I'm, I'm disagreeing with you. There's, there's like a, within the keto community, there's, there's a, a group, a sector that is all about advocating for high protein and there's a opposite in the spectrum in which they're advocating for incredibly low protein and there's dangers and risks to both sides of them. You don't want to be under consuming protein. There's obviously adverse effects to that, but there's also uh, an upper threshold in which, you know, too much protein is certainly not going to elicit the, the optimal outcome. Right. And it's very individual. But what I'm saying is that a lot of people, at least in the, the, the way we're doing it, where we're doing ketosis with, with cancer and, and that they're not getting enough protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we have to add perfect amino to their, because they need to, they, they need the protein and that when we add perfect amino, it doesn't, it doesn't get turned into a, to sugar. It doesn't change. It doesn't take them out of ketosis. I have a, a, a patient who's a, <clears throat> he's a world champion in his sport. Uh, and it's a motor sport and it's very intense. And, uh, he had gained about 20 pounds in his off season. Um, he usually races at 165, 170. The guy works out four hours a day. He's an animal. He's a total crazy animal. And uh, he had gained 20 pounds in his off season. And he called me and he said, I got to get the weight off. I said, great. Uh, why don't you try a low carb paleo? Let's see what happens. Uh, calls me back. No, that didn't work. Okay. Uh, why don't you go on a ketogenic diet? He said, okay. So after two weeks, he calls me, he says, I'm, I'm doing what you said, but I'm not in ketosis. I said, okay, just do a fast for three days and then start eating only fat. Okay. At three days fast, he goes into ketosis. He's eating only fat. I said, okay, now start adding protein every day, a little bit. When he hit 28 grams of protein per day, he goes out of ketosis. He is changing that protein enough into glucose that he is going out of ketosis. Now, it, with his activity level and his weight, 28 grams of protein is way too low for him. Yeah, that's, Now, that's he nuts. lost the weight. And I gave him 30 tablets a day of perfect amino, and that made up all the protein that he needed. And he did great. But I have seen this many times. So you, So I suggest that people that are on a ketogenic diet unless they're ones like like who can eat high protein and stay in ketosis um that uh that they supplement because for most of the people we see that otherwise they're not getting enough so how many grams of protein for instance in his case are in those 30 tablets i mean 28 grams of protein is freaking astronomically low yeah so 10 grams of perfect amino is the equivalent uh, it depends on what you're looking at, but it's the equivalent of about 35 to 40 grams of actual meat, fish, or or egg protein. Based off like the bioavailable absorption of that protein? Right. It's not absorption, it's utilization. Gotcha. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Well, shoot, man. I'll give it a shot. I'll uh, I'll try. I've, I've been doing a lot of um, you know, I'm manipulating my training quite a bit right now. I'm I'm in a off season building phase, so making sure I've got adequate nutrition and absorption to, you know, optimize for recovery as I'm going up in weights. Uh, is is the name of the game. So. I will. I should be able to be able to tell a pretty tangible difference um, with any supplementation I'm doing. So I'll give it a shot. Give it a shot. Take ten grams first thing in the morning on an empty stomach with just uh, water or a or a or you know tea, something non-caloric. It'll be in your bloodstream in 23 minutes. And then if you're doing on hard workout days, add another 10 grams later in the day. Um, and uh, I'll be very surprised if you don't see real change because. Uh, we get calls every day on it, like, holy smokes, this stuff really works. Well, I will certainly put it to the test, and uh, I'll, I'll be in touch to let you know any of the results I find, um, without a doubt. For, for the listeners, where, where do they go to find out more about you, learn about the product, get the book, and just dive into the research? Sounds great. Okay, if you have questions, just give me a call. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's a, a good uh, URL or link for you? People can go find out more about you. They can go to for the for the products. Go to bodyhealth.com, uh, okay. and for the clinic, uh, the name of the clinic is LifeWorks, L-I-F-E-W-O-R-K-S WellnessCenter.com. All 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 together. Perfect, perfect. Well, Doctor Minkoff, I certainly appreciate the time, and uh, definitely keep in touch. I'm excited to experiment with this and, and see what I can find out. Alrighty, good to talk to you, man. Likewise, take care. Okay, bye-bye.